0: This is Roger Green, host of the Surfing the Nash Tsunami podcast. This week, we are offering three conversations from episode 51, Precision Medicine, Fibrosis, Liver Function, and the Future. In this conversation, Jorn Schottenberg and Stephen Harrison share the pivotal questions they believe Scott Freeman raised in his initial Parents Nash Talk and, again, in opening comments today. Most questions center around diagnosing or treating individual patients or the implication of this research for drug development. And it frequently turns out that Scott's answer is part of this is known and part of this is unknown. What's clear, however, is that our being yoked to biopsy, as Scott puts it, limits the rate at which drug development and patient diagnostics can progress. Every listener to this podcast knows that Yorn and Stephen ask great questions. And Scott has the dual gift of explaining complex phenomena simply and weaving storytelling and humor into every topic he touches. So sit back, listen, enjoy, learn. And when you're done, join the conversation on our LinkedIn and Facebook discussion groups. I'm going to turn to my colleagues, Dr. Schottenberg and Dr. Harrison and Ms. Campbell and ask which one of you guys has the first question.
1: Yarn Schottenberg. I'll just share you my thoughts quickly when Scott was talking, detailing this, and then maybe uh, Stephen can follow up. By the technologies that uh, Scott mentioned, we're able to paint a micro picture of the cirrhotic or the pre pre-serotic liver and understand better how much diversity is, potentially is, or could be, and how much of that diversity we have to potentially address in, in patients. It gives us an idea on why certain drugs might or might not work in a subset of patients, why we have responders and non-responders. There's much more, if you're trying to transfer that into the clinical context of a patient responding or not responding to drug or having this cause of his liver disease or the other cause, this could be really one of the breakthrough observations. I'm still trying to put my mind around how the complexity of this is just so high. So I guess my first question to Scott is very straightforward, is how do I integrate that in a single patient for then turning this to a better outcome or applying the right drug? If you have so many signals, how do you identify the relevant signal for this patients? How could we use this
2: technology from your perspective, Scott?
3: Scott Friedman.
2: A uh, really good question urine. And the answer is partly known and partly wishful thinking. The part that's known are things like pharmacogenomics. I think they're going to be laughing at us in another 20, maybe 40 years and how we prescribe medications. We say, oh, you know, you have this symptom or you have this disease. It could be something in the liver. It could be inflammatory bowel disease. And you have this disease. We're going to try drug A because that works in a lot of people. Oh, drug A didn't work. Let's try drug B. But now even inflammatory bowel disease and more importantly in drug metabolism, we can actually define by assessing gene expression, what drugs should work in the case of IBD, what drugs are going to be effectively metabolized or may be toxic in the case of pharmacogenomics. You know, the pharmacogenomics is the here and now. There are some drugs where if you have certain variants of drug metabolizing genes in your liver, which is where most metabolism occurs, then you should stay away from that drug or you should double the dose or you should find an alternative. Pharmacogenomics is here and now, things more like precision therapy for subsets of either liver disease or IBD, we're still effectively laying down the cobblestones to build a road to greater truth. I think in the case of IBD, we're getting closer, uh, but that may also be true in NAFLD. So one of the things that we all labor under is the idea that everybody who has the same fatty liver pattern under the microscope has the same disease. And that may be naive. It may be that there are subtypes or what sometimes are called endophenotypes, so that even though the patient has the same microscopic picture of their liver, one patient may have gotten there because there's insulin resistance that's driving a lot of the damage. Others may have more oxidant stress or reactive oxygen molecules that damage tissues. Others yet may have sensitivity to toxic lipids. If we don't know that those are three different patients with three different disease drivers, then it's no surprise that one size will not fit all in terms of trying a drug. And that may be one of the reasons why the best we can do in the drugs that are being tested now for NASH is somewhere between 20 to, at best, 50% percent of the patients may be responding. And that's at best probably closer to 25 or so. Um, so we need that kind of precision information, Yorn, to help define subtypes of disease that may be amenable to specific treatments. But we have a long, long way to go. There is one other point, and I made it in the lecture I gave to Steve's conference in Texas, which is the last thing clinicians want to have to do when they're seeing a new patient in 30 minutes and a follow-up patient in 10 or 15 minutes, which is typical in our institution. The last thing they want to have to do is go interrogate their genetic information and decide what drug or what subtype of a disease they have. And so there is an ambitious effort, an international effort to develop the software to take all of that massive information and filter it and distill it down to actionable information so that when you're seeing your patient with the electronic medical record in front of you, the EMR will tell you, Dr. Harrison, your patient has this or that enzyme phenotype or this or that subtype of NASH based on his or her gene expression in their blood or in their tissue. This is the recommended drug for your patient now in your practice. And it has to really distill it down to that because we can't expect busy clinicians to suddenly become geneticists or pharmacologists. There's a universe of information and technology being developed to effectively translate complex genetic information into actionable decision-making at the point of care at the clinic bedside or at the bench in practice.
3: Steven Harrison. My mind is racing with so many questions, Scott, as I hear you talk. You know, just free association, just things that are coming to my mind. I mean, we talk about ballooned hepatocytes being essentially dysfunctional hepatocytes that, that trigger activation of stellate cells. Is this stellate cells in senescence or these senolytic stellate cells? Could we call them like the equivalent of a ballooned hepatocyte? Is it like a senolytic stellate cell is a bad of the bad actor, if you will? It Should we be, now that we know what they are, and now that we know that if we were to reverse engineer this and we could use CAR T therapy to identify these cells, is there a way we can identify a population of patients where this is a predominant player in fibrogenesis? And if so, could we target drugs, not necessarily CAR T therapy, but I wonder if some of our current drugs are behaving differently against this cell type. It's just a bevy of questions to ask ask, is there a genetic polymorphism that could link to a higher proportion of these cells? Like PNPLA-3 links to more fat, leads to more NASH. Is there a genetic polymorphism that links to a higher percentage of senolytic cells in a NASH patient?
2: Terrific question. Answer unknown. Part of the answer, actually, you already gave away without realizing it. So the PNPLA-3, which is a PNPLA-3 is a gene that stands for patatin-like phosphatase 3. It came out of an unbiased genetic study of Helen Hobbs and her group at UT Southwestern some years ago. Patients who have a particular variant in PNPLA3 are at higher risk of developing NASH if they are obese. And that's important because lean patients with the risk polymorphism don't seem to have as heightened a risk. It's when you get obese. But it turns out that while most of the effort has studied how that gene variant affects injury to hepatocytes, it turns out that the PN, like every gene, it's expressed in more than one cell. It turns out that when PNPLA3 variant is expressed in stellate cells, those cells are more fibrogenic. So it begs the question, maybe we should be thinking about variants that are affecting not just the way the target of the injury, the hepatocyte is responding, but also what is downstream of that injured hepatocyte? In other words, what are the signals that are emanating from that injured cell that are saying, get here and help me make more inflammation, make some scar, let's mount some defense against this. I think we're gonna see a growing list of gene variants that are affecting more than just the hepatocyte we just have to look for them. In terms of the balloon hepatocyte, and I do need to make one small correction for your listeners, Stephen, the strict term would be senescent cells. Senolytic is a therapy, whether it's a cell or a chemical that kills senescent cells, and that we would certainly want to use senolytics towards senescent stellate cells. Are they like balloon hepatocytes? Well, in a way, although, you know, I think to our best guess is that balloon hepatocytes are a special kind of injured hepatocyte that's releasing a lot of dangerous, fatty, toxic lipids. So that's leading. To the signals, the stellate cell is this poor reactive cell that's saying, "Uh oh, I'm seeing all these signals. Time to wake up, activate, and make some scar to protect this tissue." So they're kind of a yin yang, where one provides the signals, so the other is re- is the responder cell.
3: Yeah. Thanks for clarifying that. That that makes sense. If if you were to look to the future, do you see a day where we could easily assess by imaging this cell type? Well,
2: yes. The short answer. The longer answer is, uh, I actually I thought about this about. 20 years ago and filed a patent which was issued but could never so-called reduce it to practice and others are doing better at that in later day. That is, if activated stellate cells or better yet senescent stellate cells are expressing particular molecule on the outside of the cell, that becomes a ready target for uh, imaging agents that can bind to that. And there have been in our efforts to administer a binding agent, it could be a radioisotope, it could be an MR contrast agent, but that also has a guide missile attached to it that will direct it only to that molecule on those cells. And we reasoned years ago, and I think it's still true, that if you could quantify the mass, the number of activated fibrogenic stellate cells, that that would be a pretty good surrogate for how much scar the liver is likely to be making. So there are imaging methods already in animals, some great work done over the years by Peter Caravan, who's up at Mass General, but others as well, quite a number from China and throughout Asia that are using different molecules to guide imaging molecules to specific cell types, in particular stellate cells. I
3: mean, if we could just take that and relate this back to drug development, where we're looking to find a drug that changes how people feel, function, and survive, and, and we can link it to an outcome. I wonder if we could measure these cells and use it as a surrogate for portal hypertension. Spleen size, spleen volume, all link very nicely to HVPG. And I, To me, this is an area that's just ripe for investigation and has a direct direct link back to drug development? Amen, brother. We are yoked to
2: pathology, which was a powerful tool in the late 19th and to the mid-20th century. And we are now being held back by our insistence that we do liver biopsies and look under the microscope at these different features that tell us how the patient is doing. And while they are certainly informative, first of all, we can get a lot more information out of a liver biopsy than simply what the pathologist tells us, meaning we can evaluate that liver tissue using AI-driven or artificial intelligence-driven machine learning to quantify every dot and, pixel and pattern in that liver tissue in a way that no human eye could ever amass. So if we do biopsies, we need to do a whole lot better in capturing that information. But remember, and you know this very well, Stephen Jorn, that the, the liver biopsy at the end of the day is what's called a surrogate. We don't really care if the liver biopsy looks better, if the patient doesn't live longer, feel better, or have improved health. So we're laboring under this existing paradigm because we haven't validated newer methods, where you have to see the biopsy improve and hope that the biopsy improvement in 2021 will mean that in 2025 and 2030, that that patient, if they're still on the drug, will actually live longer and better. As Steve knows well, there is currently a drug development approval path where the FDA is willing to consider approving drugs under what's called the subpart H authorization where they say, well, we hope or we will approve this drug because the biopsy improved, but you guys better show us that that biopsy improvement ultimately led to the more important issues of how the patient feels, functions, and survives over a longer term.
1: And now, back to Roger.
2: We hope you've enjoyed this recording. If you have any questions or
0: comments about the content of this conversation or the entire episode, please send an email to questions at surfingnash.com. We'll be back next Wednesday, October 27th, to discuss using MRE to predict outcomes of chronic liver disease with Alina Allen of the Mayo Clinic. Ian Rowe will also join to share questions and reflect on how this connects to some of his work in Leeds. I hope you'll join us then. Until then, stay safe. Surf on. See you on the podcast. Bye-bye now.